Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 46, Stories of Unity. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your co-host today, along with Adam Khalil, chair of the Asian Succeeding in Innovation and Aerospace Employee Resource Group, conveniently spelling out Asia, uh, here on site. Adam, thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks, Gary. Glad to be here. So we've had some employee resource groups on the podcast before, and we've had the African-American resource group and the uh, women's resource group. So what are the goals of the one that you chair, Asia? Okay, uh, employee resource groups are established to foster an inclusive workplace. Like all other nine ERGs, Asia ERG goal is foster a collaborative and inclusive workplace to bring about innovative solutions to NASA's mission. Uh, second, influence hiring and employee retention to gain and retain talent and bring new perspectives through active engagement. Three, raise awareness of GSC policies and processes. Fourth, is serve as a cultural ambassadors to fuel better engagement to the management team. Fifth, is transform employees into think tanks and build a talent pipeline, increasing representation and inclusiveness. All right, really hitting it all. Uh, so Adam, uh, May is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. So what is the significance of this month to you? Yeah, sure. Uh, highlighting this month is important to recognize the remarkable contributions by the previous generations of Americans of Asian and Pacific Islander uh, descent. Also, it's important to understand the cultural differences within the GSE workforce, which can make it easier for us to relate to the people that have different backgrounds, and together we build a lasting legacy for a more inclusive workplace. Yeah, and so that's what we're doing today. We're engaging with the Asian Pacific American uh, community. So Houston, we have a podcast is teaming up with Asia for Asian Pacific American Heritage Month to tackle this theme of uh, unity. And we've wrangled four guests from different backgrounds across the center uh, in fields like exploration, safety, procurement, and the International Space Station. And then we'll get to hear their story and how they got to NASA and then what they do to make human spaceflight possible. So Adam, who is our first guest? Uh, first is Christine Bowie. She's the deputy manager for Institutional Procurement Office and advisor for the Asia Employee Source Group. She also first came to the U.S. as a refugee from Vietnam when she was 11. Great. All right, let's get right into it. Producer Alex, cue the music. Well, Christine, thank you for coming on the show to tell your story today. Thank you. Happy to be here today. <laughs> well, I wanted to start with, and, and this is curious, is, is um, you came to the United States from Vietnam, actually, when you were a kid. Mm -hmm. So yes. what, what was that like, the transition, I guess, from Vietnam to the States? Wow. I was 11 at the time. <laughs> <clears throat> very, very young, and I had a very traumatic experience coming over here on a boat. I was one of the refugees, boat refugees. Yeah, we were stranded in the ocean for like 20 days without water or food. So something like that you don't forget easily, even as a child. Um, so coming over here, everything was like new. It was like a new land, a new beginning. Everything was just totally strange and new. 
um, we got a lot of help from church. They gave us clothing and food in the beginning, so, you know. Yeah. I mean, I was too young to really um, comprehend and appreciate what all they were doing. But now looking back, yeah. Yeah. You, all those amazing people. Looking back at it objectively, you just, it was just part of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, looking back, you know, I told my kids every chance I get, you know, you just need to give. Because mm-hmm. mom and dad came and we received. Yes. So. And it was very, very helpful. Yeah. What were some of the things that were most new to you? When you said things were new, was it, was it a culture shock or was it, I don't know, maybe. Everything. Everything. Yeah, I think we came in the winter. So, you know, there's no winter in Vietnam. At mm. least South Vietnam, there's no winter. Mm. The temperatures there stays in, I want to say, the 90s, year-round. So coming over here, the first winter was, you know, I mean, Houston wasn't cold, but then we were only here for a couple months, and then we went on, we moved to Oklahoma City, and Oklahoma City at the time had snow. Oh, so it was a snow. yes, it was a true winter. And at the time, I didn't know how to wear tennis shoes, for instance. <laughs> and I still don't know how to wear tennis shoes to this day, because I grew up in flip flops. Oh, I see. It was so funny, you know. Um, the church they gave us shoes, and my dad made us wear shoes to school. But then um, halfway walking to school, I took off my tennis shoes and I put on my flip-flops. Of course, (laughs) you know, in hindsight, it wasn't, you know, a smart thing to do because I caught cold all winter long. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, I get, well, your body's not used to it and you're taking off your shoes. So that was a total adjustment, you know, just the temperature itself and then going to school so there was the language barrier, of course. Oh, that's huge, yeah. Yeah, but you know, luckily when you when you're young, you're like a sponge, <laughs> and you absorb, and you know, you just learn. You you pick little things up here and there, and eventually you blend in. Okay. Yeah. So you you eventually felt that you eventually felt like you sort you of know, started to blend in a little bit. I really didn't feel the transition. It just became part of my life. You know. Hmm. I think when you're young and you're in a new culture, you just you just learn to adapt and you don't even think about it, you know? Yeah. Like, I think when you're older and you learn to play piano or anything, your mind have to make that transition, you know? But um, the younger you are, the, 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 the easier it is to adapt mm-hmm. and adopt new things. So I, if you were to ask me, you know, when did I feel that transition, I really can't tell you. It just it just became a part of me. It just, and I'm pretty sure it's like that for many people that came here when they were younger. Yeah. Yeah. In school, was there certain subjects that sort of clicked with you as you were going through this transitional period? Maybe some things you really latched onto and really liked. Maybe the education system really opened your eyes to some extra possibilities of what you wanted to do for the rest of your life. So I can tell you math was very easy for me. Really? <laughs> and that's probably because of the school that I got in Vietnam. Okay. So math was just, it was just easy. And then English, of course, was not. <laughs> <laughs> I remember taking many ESL um, courses. Mm-hmm. 
English and then, as a second language. Yes, English as a second language. And then I also had um, additional tutoring on the side to help me learn. Okay. Mm-hmm. So at what point did you decide, because right now you're in accounting, and I'm mm-hmm. guessing that's kind of what you wanted to pursue for school, right? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> <laughs> Was it forced upon you on your parents? Oh, so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit. So, you know, Asian parents, all Asian parents want their kids to be doctors. And if you can't be a doctor, then you be an engineer. And if you can't be an engineer, I guess you go to business school. It's like <laughs> the last one on the scale of things. So, of course, I went down that path. So you didn't, you didn't, was it you didn't want to be a doctor or an engineer? Or well, is you it know just what? You I took one semester of biology at U of H. Mm-hmm. Central Campus, and I think we will. There were at least 400 of us in that big, big auditorium. It was so intimidating, and <clears throat> me with my uh, sleeping habit, <laughs> I didn't do well. <laughs> you fell asleep in class. I fell asleep in every single class, <laughs> and I still do to this day. The minute people lecture, I go to sleep. Oof. So then, of course, I'm switch over to engineering, and I did really well in engineering in every classes because you know math was easy for me, but then physics was absolutely not. I took one physics class, and I said, you know what? I don't, I can't be an engineer. I'm not a physics person. So then, at the time, um, my husband, my boyfriend, then he said, honey, why don't you just go for business? <laughs> <laughs> and you know. So with my um, passion for number, accounting was the obvious choice. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So you did, when you started taking those classes, did you really start excelling? It was at home for me. Really? Yeah. I slept through every single class, and I aced all the way through. Wow. Yeah. So you knew, okay, that's definitely where you're <laughs> excelling. Because I, I couldn't do that. I struggled through accounting. I really oh, did. Oh, no. It was a piece of cake for me. <laughs> so yeah. then um, where did you start working right after school? So so after I, um, let's see, after I decided that accounting is my major, mm-hmm. um, so then my friend got a job as a co-op out here. He was an engineering uh, co-op. Okay. And then he started to tell me about NASA. And I said, NASA? Space exploration? Those people up there in the sky? <laughs> I said, I want to be there. I think that's a cool place to be. Yeah. So then I put in my application for a co-op. When I put in, I had already missed the deadline. For that semester oh no but then you know what i really wanted to be here so i was on the phone bugging the co-op coordinator <laughs> every day for like two weeks i said you know i really want to be out here and i uh, please 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 give me an interview i think he was fed up with me for two after <laughs> calling him two weeks straight <laughs> and he told me to come in for an interview <laughs> finally gave in yeah and All that's right. how i got my first co-op um, position out here. Wow. And you, um, so where'd you, where was the first position? Was it? I was in FMD. What's that's, that? Uh, financial Management Division. Okay. That's, that was where most accountants were at the time. And so that was my first co-op tour. And then the second co-op tour, I decided I want to see what's beyond accounting. Hmm. So I went over to procurement. Okay. And I don't know if it was necessarily the job in itself or the um, environment, 
the people that really attracted me and I felt more at home. So after graduation, I chose procurement and I've been there ever since. Really? Yes. You haven't, you've just, uh, and I see not only have you been in procurement, but you sort of worked your way up through procurement. Now you're a manager. Yes. All right. (laughs) So this is kind of a broad question, but maybe some people don't really recognize. You you think of NASA, you think of engineering, space flight, and science, Mm -hmm. but there's there's a business side to things. Absolutely. Someone's got to keep track of the numbers, right? Exactly. So what does the procurement office do? So, you know, the easiest way I explain to people is if you look around here, NASA, we don't do all the jobs ourselves, you know, like the uh, right now, the International Space Station is floating out the, you know, out, out there in outer space. We manage the contract, but the contractor that does, the one that maintains those ISS is Boeing. Hmm. And not only the Boeing, but they, under Boeing, they have quite a, a few major subs, uh, subcontractors and smaller subcontractors supporting them. So, you know, on a high level, it's like that. But if, but if you look around you, you know, let's say JSC buildings, JSC employees, we don't quite maintain the buildings or we don't build the buildings. Every time we get funding for a new building or to even do a roof repair, we get a contractor to come in and mm-hmm. do the job. And that's where procurement comes in. We um, do everything from cradle to grave from putting the request for proposal out to uh, evaluate and award the, the, the contract to the contractors so that way they can come in and, and do the job. So we do a lot of NASA, as NASA overall, we do more of oversight than actual hands-on. I see. So you're awarded a certain amount of money and you need a task, and then your job is to make sure that that money is spent mm-hmm. as efficiently as possible, exactly. bringing in the right people to do mm-hmm. the right job. It's done reliably, reliably. It's done based on a certain set of rules and requirements. You have Absolutely. to make sure you fulfill these obligations. Yes. Before we doing. pay them. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay, so that, that makes sense. So yes. we are the, we sort of, we get the money and we make sure the job is done, but exactly. we enable these contractors yes. to they do They carry them. out the contract that has to carry out the requirements in the contract mm-hmm. before we make any payment to them. So then what's your job as a manager in the procurement office? Are you delegating these responsibilities? <laughs> <laughs> so as a manager, you know, I have um, direct reports that are under me. From team leads to contracting officers to contract specialists, so basically all of us do the same kind of job, but at a different level. Like the contract specialist, when you start out you, in procurement, you start out as a contract specialist, and then after you've been there a while and you work your way up, um, you understand the rules and regulations, and then you become a contracting officer. Hmm. At that point, you review the work that the contract specialists do. And then as the team lead, you know, you manage, you oversee work that, that were done by the contracting officers and contract specialists. And then as a manager, not only the, um, not only you have the overall responsibility, but then you're also looking at a different side. You want to develop people, soft skill. Yes. You want, you know, you become more of a people developer 
ensuring that you there there is a succession pipeline that would well, that when you exit when you leave there will be behind you to pick up your job but mm-hmm. not just to carry out the technical but also the softer people side yeah, as well. Yeah, you're reviewing to make sure the job is done correctly, but mm-hmm. then also empowering others to develop their skills. Exactly. So let's end with a piece of advice mm-hmm. for you coming from uh, Vietnam as a kid and, mm-hmm. and just kind of learning the ropes for this brand new culture mm-hmm. to now being a leader inside of NASA. What's a piece of advice that you would give someone outside? Whatever you do, just do your best. Just approach it with passion and just be the best you can be. And at the end of the day, you know, um, you alone cannot experience everything. So look around for good mentors. Look around for people, for idol, and go to them and get the help to fulfill your dream. And as long as you have a dream, as long as you have your passion, anything is possible. I love it. Christine, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you. Okay, that was Christine Bowie talking about her role in procurement and the Asia ERG. So, Adam, who do we have next? Uh, next is Doug Wong. He's the visiting vehicle SNMA integration lead for the International Space Station Cargo Resupply Service, CRS contract. Wow, all right, he's got a big role. And he actually came from Hong Kong, too. It was a really cool talk. So let's go right ahead to there. Doug, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today to share your story. Thanks for having me. Of course. I wanted to start with uh, your journey because yours is a unique one because you were an immigrant and you had actually were in Hong Kong for the first 19 years of your life. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I was an immigrant uh, when I was 19 years old. And uh, I spent most of my uh, uh, elementary and high school education in Hong Kong. Okay. I, in fact, I attribute a lot of my current uh, career success to both my uh, elementary school and my high school as well. So uh, have you ever uh, seen or visited or maybe talked to an uh, elementary school in the U.S. and have a good comparison? Yeah, I actually uh, did get the chance to do okay. that uh, in one uh, occasion. And uh, I was having... Uh, a talk with uh, some of the elementary school kids. I believe it was up in the Woodlands, uh, Texas, oh. near Houston. And uh, yeah, that was that was very interesting. In that, um, the kids they were just so amazed at uh, how how uh, you know the way NASA operates and all the futuristic things that we do. And <laughs> I actually can uh, you know when I, when I was there, I could actually kind of like see through their minds as to this kind of let's see the amazement out of their faces and it was just uh, fascinating yeah actually well so so being in the public affairs office we go out and do stuff like that uh quite frequently actually and it's always i, I always kind of purposely sign up for those things because sometimes you just kind of get into the groove of of your day and you just sort of realize uh, you, or you don't realize how special what you're doing is and you just it's just a day-to-day job and then you go out and you say well this is what I'm doing and then you see the kids faces light up and they're like 
what? You're doing what? That's amazing. I didn't even know that was possible. And you're just, you kind of step back and realize how amazing it is. So with your experience with um, uh, talking with these students and maybe your experience with the school, how would you compare it to your education in Hong Kong? What are some of the main differences? Um, I, let me see. Uh, well, in, incidentally, I also get the opportunity to visit my high school and also get, uh, gave a similar talks about my career. So I can actually tell the difference between them. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, kids in, the, uh, in Asia, uh, they tend to be a little bit more reserved hmm. and uh, they don't necessarily express their feelings but but once you start talking to them and um, once you get them up to the speed then they will they will have all kinds of questions <laughs> i remember they love to ask me about astronomy which is not actually a very good uh, subject for me but uh, i was still able to uh, invo invoke their imagination uh, which was wonderful and uh, in that respect it's kind of similar uh, for the kids uh, uh, in the u.s in that uh, they, they, they they usually start become more excited okay and uh, <laughs> you know they, they was like wow wow uh, 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 you know engineers from nasa cool yeah that kind of uh, expression you see it from their face and then they start having a lot of uh, facial expressions and they, you can tell that they're very very engaged uh, to your talk yeah and that's it's such a pleasure uh, so one of the main differences um since you you so you were in school you were you were a student in in asian school elementary schools and you understand the cultural differences um, you know, what is it really that makes that, what are some of the cultural highlights that really point out why it's, it's a little bit more reserved maybe than the excitement of a U.S. school? Yeah, I think a lot has to do with the, the, uh, cultural upbringing, especially, um, the, the parenting. Oh. Okay. Um, so when you're a kid in uh, Asian kid, uh, you'll be t uh, told not to uh, speak up. Okay, until you're told. Oh. Uh, yeah, so this this is uh, something very different, uh, com uh, unlike uh, the kids over here, you know, they, they oh, would they just be speak up very open want. to, yeah, <laughs> express themselves. In fact, this is something that I have to learn uh, through time, too. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, are you talking about even in the workplace, too? Really oh, yeah, absolutely. When to speak up? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. So yeah. even, so what was the transit? I mean, coming here when you were 19, mm -hmm. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty significant amount of time that you spent over in Hong Kong. So I'm sure coming here as a, as a teenager, you know, not even just like a teenager, I mean, you're almost in your 20s at this point. Uh, how was the adjustment coming to the United States? Well, it did, uh, uh, did uh, take some uh, getting used to. Mm -hmm. uh, again, uh, it's primarily the cultural issue. Um, yeah, I, 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 I'm always a very quiet person. Even now, I'm a very quiet person. But then at full time, I learned that uh, you really have to learn to express yourself express how you feel, uh, what your opinions are. Otherwise, um, people will see you as distant, hmm. not friendly, or in some cases, uh, just, uh, you know, don't, don't pay uh, too much attention to you, okay? Um, so this is something I learned through time, and that's one of, also, also one of the reasons why now uh, uh, at NASA, I try to, in addition to my current work, I also try to uh, be involved in some of the for example, the employee resource group uh, activities and to try to help bring myself out. I also see the need to, uh, for myself to give back to the next generation. Yeah. So that becomes one of the things that I feel very passionate about. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, even if you're a little bit more introverted and, and you maybe you are a nice person and maybe you do care about other people, but maybe... It's since it's not apparent, it doesn't. It's not perceived that way. So you kind of actually have to force yourself to go on. I mean, I, I did that. That was college for me. College was a brand new experience, and uh, 
And so you kind of had to force yourself to go out and make friends and to join organizations that maybe you didn't know anyone, but you knew it was going to advance your career. And maybe you make a couple friends along the way. And actually, those friends are some of the closest I have right now. And just because I decided at the time that I wanted to go out and I was nervous at first. I was really hesitant. Maybe this isn't right for me. It's kind of scary, but you got to go out and do it. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Um, it's always very difficult when you first meet someone and try to talk to people. But once you uh, warm up and develop the relationship, you find that uh, very beneficial. This is something that I time, time and time again I, I discovered. So. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to sort of get into your education too, sure. because it is, it's all over the place. And you are, I mean, honestly, it makes me want to go back to school uh, and get a couple more <laughs> degrees and some, some letters at the end of my, uh, of my signature there. But you've been, uh, you've had your, your hands in human factors uh, in the Constellation program, Orion. So, so how was your, how did you transition from, uh, you know, coming here at 19 to eventually working at NASA and then going around NASA and getting all of this different experiences? Well, I think, uh, again, school was a, a very important part of school. And, mm-hmm. and I, I remember, I think my, my biggest motivation was, uh, there was one time after I came here, I watched uh, a rerun of the uh, Space Odyssey 2001 on TV. Oh, yeah. Man, that really inspired me. Okay, I said, oh, wow. I mean, this is something that, I mean, you're talking about some near future, within my lifetime. (laughs) We can actually do this kind of things. And then that that fascinated me. And that that kind of like uh, started my uh, career path. So I decided to study uh, mechanical engineering at school. And I went to uh, University of Maryland uh, uh, in College Park. And uh, I got my uh, BS degree uh, around uh, 1987. And then I moved right ahead and, and, and got my... Uh, master degree also in mechanical engineering in the same school mm-hmm. and then uh, uh, right after that point I, uh, I went I went straight to uh, uh, NASA at that time oh. I went to uh, NASA Langley Research Center because it just happened that that, that was a different time okay <laughs> see, see uh, uh, unlike right now uh, which the only way you can get here is to go through the, the pathway program right they were actually out there uh, in my school try to hire people <laughs> and uh, and I got accepted. That was, of course, uh, very exciting. Oh yeah! And uh, so I, I spent uh, 16 years of my career uh, in at the NASA uh, Langley Research Center, primarily uh, doing a lot of uh, research-related activities. And so that's when I started exposed to um, things like from electronics and developing electronics for instrumentation uh, for for wind tunnels, and then to uh, human factors for for aviation um, safety. Mm-hmm. And that was extremely uh, interesting, by the way, because uh, it's like a reveal game. Okay, what, what we did was that uh, we developed a uh, display system so uh, with all kinds of uh, symbologies, which is unlike. Uh, uh, I mean, I mean, uh, I should say, which is very similar to the way uh, people play video game. Okay, the displays with a lot of all, all different kinds of oh, uh, yeah. interesting icons. Uh, so that that was a very interesting experience uh, ex- experience for me. Uh, and and in fact, um, it touches a lot on uh, safety-related issues, and that sort of built up the foundation for me uh, to develop an interest in human factors and safety. So um, about 12 years ago, I transferred over to uh, Johnson Space Center. So um, because of my background in that area, I started working on the uh, 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 on the constellation program and also the human research program and did a lot of uh, uh, human factors related research. Mm-hmm. 
So for those who may not know, human factors, uh, how does human factors relate to the engineering world? Like what, what is, how would you define human factors? Yeah, see, uh, a lot of times when you think about uh, engineering, right, we're thinking about how the machine, you know, designing machines, yeah. how the machines work, right, the intricate parts of the machines. But uh, we, we often forgot um, a, major, a major part of any system is the human user. <laughs> Okay, so a lot of times if we don't focus on that, uh, we may develop something that is uh, um, not to the liking of the user. Right. It can be difficult to use. Uh, I'm sure you have, sometimes you may have the experience of using a very difficult to use software. You get so frustrated. <laughs> yes. So that's where the human factors engineering uh, comes in. We try to make sure that uh, the things that we develop have the user in mind. Right. The user should be the center of your design because this is, the problem that you want to solve, right? You want to help the human. Which is, I mean, I mean, that's the whole point of human spaceflight, right? That's you can You can design a system that works, that's robust, that's functional. But if a human can't use it as easily as possible, then maybe it's not as efficient as possible. Absolutely. Or safe, and that's where the safety comes in. Yeah, too. that's part of the safety. Yeah, and that's where you are now, right? Are you in safety and machine yeah, insurance? Yeah, I, I think it's kind of like a gradual uh, evolution of my career path. So uh, now I'm in the safety area and mm -hmm. actually involved in to make sure that the things that we design are safe enough for human to use. Mm -hmm. uh, so how do you? So what's your day-to-day -day stuff then? If you're if in, in safety and mission assurance, what are you doing, maybe hands-on or otherwise, to make sure that whatever component that you're focusing on, and I think you're focusing on the orbital ATK Cygnus, right? Yes, is that your that's focus? correct. So. Um, what what how is how is the safety and mission assurance component in the overall process of making sure that that vehicle is going to work safely yeah. with the ISS and for the crew? Sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, just for those uh, who may not know, um, so Orbital ADK is one of the commercial companies who are developing uh, these uh, space uh, cargo vehicles mm -hmm. and develop uh, cargos, uh, uh, um, deliver cargos up to the the, the space station. So uh, uh, a big part of it uh, uh, is to ensure that this, the, the cargo that we de uh, deliver up to the station uh, uh, is safe. Um, that has a lot uh, of different uh, aspects of it. Uh, one of them being the vehicle itself. Uh, make sure that the vehicle design is uh, sound and, uh, and uh, during its operation, it won't have any uh, hiccups. Okay. For example, malfunctions say uh, yeah, the engine blows up, that's not a good thing, right? Oh, when you're approaching bad, the yes. space station. And even after the, uh, the, the cargo vehicle is docked, um, what, what happens to the cargo inside? What happens if we have some unsafe cargo that can cause uh, harm to the crew? So all these are things that we have to cover. Mm -hmm. And once it's uh, starting to depart, we also have to worry about its safety to the, the, the station. Again, engine issue, okay? If the engines fire too early or, or misfired, if something went wrong with the spaceship, then it affects the station. So uh, even though um, some people some people may say this is just a cargo vehicle, why why uh, crew safety uh, why why safety is so important? But you know there are all, all these kind of things you have to worry about. Even when it's uh, deorbiting, entering the uh, the atmosphere, that could be a potential hazard to uh, people on the ground too. Yeah. So all these are things that we have to think about. And I think that's the important part is is 
it's it's the perspective that right. you're approaching it at. So maybe uh, another another person is just worried about the cargo itself and making sure that it's snug and packed and is going to work. Another person's just concerned about the thrusters firing at the right time, at the right place, in the right direction. But you have to come in and make sure that not only are they firing in the right direction, but they're going to do it in, in a safe manner to make sure that extra perspective is coming That's in. correct. Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of it uh, has to do with... Uh, my my part in particular is to oversee all the the, the entire design of the system the, of the vehicle. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, some uh, uh, engineers they might be focusing on designing uh, just the engine part, for example. They may be they may overlook in some of the implication of their design to uh, the other portions. Okay, and also to the safety of the uh, the, the crew, for example. Mm -hmm. So all these are things that I need to look at uh, uh, from a bigger picture perspective to understand and, and uh, un, um, what kind of safety implications uh, there are I and see. make corrections to it. So looking back at your education in Hong Kong, moving to your education here, and then your career at NASA, what are some of the, what are some of the takeaways that really prepared you for doing what you're doing right now, especially in, in your education? I think it's... Uh, it's the fundamental understanding of some of the basic uh, uh, math and physics, uh, any kind of science topic. Um, I, I have a very strong uh, background in math and physics in particular. Um, so uh, I, I'm so surprised even nowadays I still use some of the concepts uh, regularly. Um, I, uh, in addition to my uh, regular job, I'm, I consider myself uh, a, an innovator. Hmm. And uh, right now, I, I'm actually uh, trying to submit a proposal to develop a space uh, nail clipping system hmm. in which, uh, see, uh, in, in space, uh, uh, like in, uh, in, in the space station, uh, the, uh, because of the crew stay there for a long time, the nails uh, get long. Okay, and then they, they do need to cut uh, the nails. Oh yeah, okay. one of those things. But you right now, about. yeah. But right now, the way they do it, they just cut it right in front in front of a, a vent, so that they allow the suction to suck it in, suck mm. the uh, nail clippings in. But that's not a very safe way to do it, and some of the clippings can still airborne, and then they can cause, for example, uh, injuries to your eyes, and nails may contain the pathogens and mm -hmm. cause uh, some disease. So what I'm trying to do is to develop an enclosed system that uh, provides a suction, so when the, when the uh, crew clip the nails, um, uh, the, the nail clippings will automatically contained uh, into the device. So I'm doing all that. So uh, just incidentally, this morning I was still trying to struggle with the physics of it. I was trying to figure out um, what size of pumps do I, do I need to use. So uh, all of a sudden, all the uh, fundamental physics that I used to learn at high school all came back to me. <laughs> I, I just think uh, suddenly I just think, wow. I mean, I'm I'm in my fifties now, and I'm still using the physics that I was taught when I was in high school. So that's, that's something eye-opening to me. So when you go back to those schools, that's what you always usually say is, I'm still using this. I still Absolutely. need it in my job right now. So make sure you're paying attention in school Absolutely. Right yes. I feel yes. like that nail clipping thing can be useful for me at home. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I'm trying to uh, file a patent for it. Um, oh, cool. So uh, I, I see that, uh, 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 for example, uh, people with the, uh, disability, they will, be, they will be able to make use of something like that so that they don't have to keep worrying about the clippings flying all over the place. You know, instead, right. they'll just go all right into um, the device. All right. Well, Doug, thank you for your contributions to NASA and for your innovations <laughs> uh, coming here and, and making a difference. So thank you for coming on the podcast and telling your story. Thank you very much. I really appreciate this opportunity.
And that was Doug talking about his journey from Hong Kong to a leader and inventor. So, Adam, who do we have next? Uh, next is Charlene Gilbert. Uh, she's a technology transfer officer in the Exploration Technology Office. Interesting title and interesting job. So here we go, jumping right ahead to that talk. Well, Charlene, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today to tell us your story. Thanks. So I wanted to start with just uh, growing up and, and just getting into into STEM because you went for a math and statistics bachelor's mm -hmm. first, and that's not something that I would personally opt for. <laughs> <laughs> so I grew up in a really small town in Upper Michigan, uh, Marquette, Michigan. Had a liberal arts university there, but a lot of the people that I went to school with don't go on to college. It's not typical. Hmm. Um, but m my mother is Japanese, and uh, my father was a GI that she met uh, during the Korean War. And uh, then she came to this country in 1954, uh, my, uh, along with two of my brothers that had been born in Japan. Hmm. Uh, and both of my parents were very adamant that all the kids were going to college. Even, <laughs> even though we didn't have any money, it didn't make any difference, right? So the thought of you better get a scholarship started really early. So when I was in probably sixth grade, seventh grade, mom, that was, you know, my mom was really adamant that you need to study hard and work hard because scholarships the way you're going to college. And, and uh, we, yeah. we all worked to pay, pay for college. Um, we got scholarships, we borrowed money, um, but that was, that was the path that we were all on. So I had um, two brothers and one sister, and both brothers and myself went to college. And so it was not even debatable. It was just that's where you were going. <laughs> but I always, I always liked science a lot and math a lot when I was in school. And back in those days, um, young ladies weren't really encouraged to pursue the hard sciences, right? Hmm. So first of all, people weren't going to college. They're not encouraged to go to college very much. And then the young ladies aren't really encouraged to go into any of the, to the STEM um, courses, right? So and, you did the opposite then. Yeah, well. <laughs> so, and, and I think we only had one or two young ladies that went after an engineering degree huh. uh, in my graduating class of 400. And, um, um, but for myself, I started in a field of biology because I just really loved it. Oh, yeah. And uh, I got into it, and then I realized that with a bachelor's degree, you weren't going to make very much money. So what's required with a bachelor's is you have to go on for master's and Ph.D., and it seemed like a really, really long road. And so I thought, and, and you know, again, we were working, everybody in my family working, borrowing money and scholarships. So yes. you're thinking about what what can I do in my <laughs> bachelor for a bachelor's, right? That's that's going to be meaningful and, and uh, something I really want to pursue. Mm -hmm. And I've always really, really loved puzzles. And so I looked and I decided to change my degree over to math and statistics. Mm -hmm. And it's applied statistics. So it was uh, in the line of market research or doing sample surveys and, and doing analysis on, on data, right? So... Um, that's always something that I've enjoyed, and, and uh, I thought, okay, well, I could do that, and I set off on that path, 
and my plan was to get a master's degree but when I arrived here and I and I started working in the fields that I was in I realized that I didn't need more detail in statistics I needed a broader background in other areas and so I pursued a, a space science degree at the Un University of Clear Lake. So you went you had your bachelor, bachelor's mm -hmm. and through your bachelor's came to NASA first mm -hmm. before realizing I should go back and learn more about space. Right. So right. what? how did you transfer from this math background to realizing that NASA was an opportunity? Well, so um, we, the, the, the class of people in the math department was pretty small. So hmm. there was some classes where we filled the first row of seats in the class. That was how small it was. So but a friend of mine um, was able to take a vacation after she graduated. The rest of us were looking for jobs, and she <laughs> took a vacation in Florida, saw a big ad that Ford Aerospace was hiring at the Kennedy Space Center. Huh. So she applied, and then they said, well, we don't have any positions there, but we've got a new contract in Houston. Space shuttle's just starting up, and would you be interested? So she came here, and then they said, do you have any more friends? Because we need to hire more people. <laughs> so she called She called all of us, and um, she called me and said, what are you doing? And I had been working at an insurance company doing statistical analysis for them. So I told her, and then I said, well, what are you doing? And she said, well, I'm working on a space shuttle program. Really? <laughs> she said, so it went on from there, and she talked yeah. me into coming for an interview and I came down here and they hired me and I packed everything up in my little car and drove down here and <laughs> people were shocked. They said, you know, do you know anybody? Do you have family? And I said, well, I have one friend down here. Yeah. And <laughs> I but showed up. It, you didn't want to pass that opportunity up. Well, no, like, right? Yeah. I mean, and working at the insurance company or working on the shuttle program, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. But the other thing is, when I got down here, I realized that everybody comes from other places. Right. So a lot of folks showed up with no friends, right? So there were a lot of us that had come from different areas, and we we formed friendships, and we had a lot of social activity, and and uh, now it's you know it's home. So yeah, no, right? I totally get that. I came here as a as a co-op student myself, and it was the same thing. Right. You know, it was a brand new opportunity, far away from home. Parents mm -hmm. were just like, "That's a little far," but I was like, "I don't want to miss out on this." So you know, I came down here, but so did a lot of other students my age with the same goal in mind, and then we yeah. all just became friends, and we're yeah. still friends to this day. So it's you kind of it's it's funny because you think you're going to be alone, but then you just develop this community right. because there's a lot of other people in the same boat. Yeah. We had some really interesting Thanksgiving dinners, you know, yeah. where mixed cultures and, oh, these are my favorite foods. And, oh, yeah. Right? We have that, too. Friendsgiving is what mm -hmm. we call it. <laughs> All right. So you were working for Ford Aerospace first and then um, McDonnell Douglas shortly after that. Was that, right. was that the order? Yeah. Right. McDonnell Douglas was um, quite the engineering company here. And then after... Um, afterwards, Boeing ended up buying McDonnell Douglas, and so hmm. both Air Ford Aerospace was sold, McDonnell Douglas was sold, and as you know, all the companies began to merge together. Right. right. So, um, but while I was working I, for Ford Aerospace, and and uh, when I worked for Ford, I worked in Building 30 in the Mission Control Center. 
my my job was working in doing um, software um, development and software test and software um, maintenance and it was in the trajectory and and uh, logic which is the mathematics that makes the ground computers work right so you weren't necessarily sitting on console doing the trajectory you were making the magic happen so that that person knew like, we had, had good we software. had a dual job so our job oh. was to sit in the back room support room. the fido and and uh track and dynamics and then also when you weren't doing that shift you're in the office trying to fix the software to to make make the computer work and back then they had the really big mainframes and so mm. it was a lot more challenging um, yeah i can right. imagine so, so you uh, first you started off in operations and then i guess you stuck around at johnson space center right so well, and kind of so then around. i i had a chance to go over at my friend again <laughs> move from <laughs> and friend. she talked me she got me started in the in the track and dynamics area and then she jumped to mcdonald douglas working in the payloads area and she got me to move over there and so I followed her over there and I was working on attached payloads and uh, space lab and uh, mm -hmm. and so that went on for a while and then um, they, there was a big contract change and McDonnell Douglas didn't win the contract hmm. so pretty soon you know the choice was either to move to the new contract or find employment elsewhere and I really wanted to stay here um, but I was not really keen on moving to the new contract and then I was fortunate um, the civil servants NASA group that I had worked with before in building 30 had an opening and they were able to hire and so I was able to come on board all right right back where I started doing <laughs> the the track and dynamics kind of work so and then being a civil servant, that's when you started moving throughout your whole career. So right. moved around, on, and you had your fingers in a lot of different uh, areas, including right. um, the one that I really wanted to highlight is, is your position now. You're right. a technology transfer officer. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So what do they do? Well, so um, federal law says it's our responsibility to transfer the technology and the research results from federal funding. Right, out mm. into the public for economic growth, economic benefit, economic security. So each of the NASA field centers has a technology transfer officer. Actually, all of the federal labs are required to have a technology transfer officer. Mm. And their job is to ensure that they are compliant with tech transfer and try to the best of their ability to make it happen. It's a very, I guess, it's a process to actually take the technology that we develop at NASA mm -hmm. and, and correct me if I'm wrong, give it to the private industry. Right, right? so it it's industry. not like you put it in a bucket and you give it to them, right? <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of steps that have to go through oh, yeah. to make sure that it's, it's appropriate, right? But some of the technology ends up in patents, which are licensed by companies that are looking, looking to either improve their business or start a business, right? Hmm. So people say, well, why don't you just give it away? Well, if uh, there's no competitive edge when you have something that everybody else has. So right. a license a license to a patent um, gives you the ability to, to use that patent and can exclude others. It okay. depends what type of patent, what type of license you have. You can have a exclusive license, which means nobody else can 
can use that patent and you're the only one. That's the strongest competitive edge that you would have, right? Right. So we, but we also have software that is developed here that is unique. We do a lot of analysis and, and um, special software um, tools that we have. And those are also made available um, to the public for their use. All right. So I'm sure you've worked with a lot of different technologies, especially right. in the tech transfer as, as an officer. But what's one that you really, really like to highlight and say this has, this has been one that you really like to showboat? Well, I, th I think the Bigelow uh, inflatable structures is hmm. probably the one that we're, that is probably very well known and we're really proud of. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a good story too, because it yeah. was a technology that we developed here, but now it's, I mean, you're talking about the Bigelow expandable activity module. Right. We've actually talked about it before on this right. on this podcast, which is great. But I mean, it didn't really realize or didn't really address that it was a technology transfer. Right. That we're taking this uh, technology and and working with it was uh, Bigelow's company, right? Right. And um, now we have actual hardware that has been tested on the International Space Station. Right. And last I heard is it's it's going to stay there. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so the next step after that would be. Um, he is always, he's a very shrewd businessman, right? He has a very long-term vision. Oh, yeah. And, and um, he, he has always talked about creating um, private structures, right? It may be um, a private space station. It mm -hmm. might be a hotel for tourism. Mm -hmm. But his, his thought in the very beginning was to create a new new industry structure for the United States, a manufacturing capability. So he's always had a really long-range vision, which I think really um, gave us confidence in licensing this technology to him that he was going to, to take it and make something of it that turns into a commercial venture, right? But all, all along the way, right, he created this um, aerospace company, Bigelow Aerospace Company. Yeah. He made tremendous um, uh, financial um, investment in the North Las Vegas area. So jobs were being created and products were being created and new knowledge was being created. So Wow. Shows um, the real potential of, of a piece of technology that right. handed over to private industry. Now it's becoming, it's it's real. It's, right. it's, it's a real piece of technology. A lot of people work on it, right? And it's for developing the space business, I right. guess. That's, right. that's a fantastic concept. Yep. Well, Charlene, thank you so much for coming on and telling your story and giving right. us a little bit of insight into this wonderful world of technology transfer. All right. Glad to be here. Thank you. Of course. Okay, that was Charlene Gilbert talking about her journey to her current role in exploration technology as a technology transfer officer. It's a pretty cool job. So one more to go. Who is our last guest? Okay, Gary. Um, last is Vin Fing. Uh, he's the manager of International Space Station Transportation Integration Office, meaning he's in charge of the integration and verification of all the vehicles that visit the space station. The GARCO uh, vehicles like Orbital ATK, Cygnus, and SpaceX Dragon. The international partners' vehicles like the Russian Soyuz the, and the Japanese HTV and soon the commercial crew vehicles from Boeing and SpaceX. Yeah, it's not like he's looking after one thing. He looks after all of those things. It's a pretty cool job. So, Producer Alex, let's do that final warp to that final talk. 
Then, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today to tell us your story. Uh, it's a real pleasure being here. Thanks for the invitation. Of course. Uh, I kind of wanted to start with, as I've been doing with all the other guests so far, is just um, how it all began, when, especially when you got interested in STEM uh, and when you grew up and got interested in science, technology. Sure, sure. Uh, I'd say when I was very young. So I grew up, uh, I grew up in uh, northern Alabama where um, the skies were very dark at night and, and my father and uh, my sister and I would, would uh, lay out outside on the hills at night and we would uh, watch the stars. So my, my um, dream and aspiration ever since I was a small kid was to be an astronomer or to maybe travel there myself as an astronaut. <laughs> and uh, this was in the late 60s, so of course it was in the news a lot. So, so for me at that time, science fiction and science were sort of blended. And I, I always sort of thought uh, or knew maybe early on that I wanted to go into a STEM field. So were you like a Trekkie fan or any, anything like that, or mainly just looking at the stars, telescopes or anything like that? I know, absolutely. I could, uh, I could uh, name the title uh, of every Star Trek uh, show oh, really? about, uh, <laughs> within about 20 seconds of, of it starting when I was a kid. Wow. Now that's a fan. Okay. Very cool. So then uh, at what point did you decide, you know, through your childhood, really looking into science fiction, especially with Star Trek, but then realizing that that maybe STEM was was a field that you really wanted to pursue? You know, I really had very broad interests. You know, as a kid, um, I was always very interested in math and science. I also liked sports. Hmm. Um, for a long time, I thought I would go into business, but I would go into a business that would uh, help me, um, that would use my math and science background uh, to, you know, further myself in some sort of type of business uh, or in some other commercial venture. And that, I think that combination really sort of led me to where I am now, hmm. which was uh, here at NASA, but um, helping with the commercial partners uh, for the commercial resupply missions and, and for commercial crew uh, coming up here in the future as well. Yeah, that's right, because your your job position now is working with those companies, right? With yeah, that's a lot right. of them. Yeah, that's right. So I've got, uh, I've worked, um, in the past I've worked uh, Space Shuttle and Space Lab, and I've worked, been with the uh, Space Station program now for some time. And my current job, I'm helping with the fleet uh, of spacecraft that come to and from the space station. And of course, we have a fleet of five now, including two U.S. vehicles as well as two vehicles from uh, from Russia and one from Japan. But we have two more on the horizon here in the next year or so. And then we have another um, uh, commercial U.S. commercial crew vehicle, a commercial cargo vehicle coming a few years down the line, and another Japanese one in the future. So we're <laughs> going to be taking our, um, our fleet of five spacecraft today and expanding those uh, as they come to and from the space station in the coming years. So what are the what are the five that you're working with right now then? Well, let's see. Today we're working uh, with the U.S. vehicles, our orbital ATK Cygnus and the SpaceX Dragon. Uh, with the Russians, we have the Russian Progress and Soyuz. Uh, and with uh, the JAXA, the Japanese partners, we have the uh, H2, uh, HTV, H2 okay. transfer vehicle. So those are those all cargo. These are all cargo vehicles. So they're, Yeah, with the exception of the Russian Soyuz, which we're dependent on today. And the Soyuz, right. Okay, so then, um, yeah, besides the Soyuz, all of these different companies are developing these cargo vehicles to work with one vehicle, right? The International Space Station. Mm -hmm. So that's, is that where you come in with? You are working to make sure that, you know, these companies are going to be able to, <laughs> when they create these unique vehicles, it's going to work with the space station. Absolutely right. So there are so many factors that go into how do you uh, launch a spacecraft from the planet, um, catch it up to the space station traveling at 17,500 miles per hour, orbiting the planet, and then uh, have it close at a very, um, to a very safe distance, and then 
uh, ultimately come up and either berth or dock to the space station. So we help, and there's so many aspects of that. There's um, guidance, navigation, and control. There's um, structural systems, thermal systems, life support systems, and so forth. So there's there's just a lot of different aspects that uh, my group, my team, helps to, to look at to make sure that they can come up both safely uh, and operate uh, with a high probability of mission success. So you think you have uh, a is it a fairly large team, or is it, a, is it a small group of people that are working with all these different companies? That- Let's see. We, uh, our transportation integration office, we typically staff from two to four people, uh, persons per vehicle. But of course, we're relying on a huge team of folks from uh, engineering and each of the engineering disciplines, from operations, from safety, uh, cargo integration, and so forth. So there's really quite an, a pretty extensive team. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've got a, a small team that's helping to do the um, the integration and the contract management. Uh, of those vehicles or the international partner integration and then but we really rely on a lot of experts in a lot of areas as well that's right so it's so your team is sort of i guess you're you got to make sure that you are i, I guess in in the tech transportation integration office you're look main, mainly getting all these components together is that your role then making sure every everybody's working together and, and executing this to make sure it happens? That's absolutely right. So we've got uh, the technical integration, there's a schedule integration. Uh, There's also, you know, if there's any, um, you know, spacecraft um, integration is difficult, right? Working with all the various launch vehicles as well as the spacecraft, there can be risks as well. Risks from a cost perspective, from a schedule, as well as from a technical. So we really make sure that we uh, mitigate all of those uh, to where they're not um, elevated risk in any of those uh, areas. But if they are, then we make sure that we inform our program managers and headquarters uh, up the line in case there are any remaining risks so that um, as a nation that we can go forward and decide, you know, eyes wide open, do we want to proceed with this particular mission or this particular configuration? Wow. Okay, so you're just keeping track of of everything and making sure when it comes down to the mission, everything's going to work, really. how is it with working with so many companies then? Because I'm sure that each one is different in its own way. So it's not like you can apply the same sort of, well, maybe you do apply maybe the same rules, but it must be different working with each one. It is. Every single one is different. Just like every individual is different, every team and every company or every international partner has its own uh, culture and um, blending of individuals, right? And they've all come to us not only from a different culture, but from a different um, spacecraft heritage, right? So it is very diff- different working. Uh, and it, it's funny, uh, as just one example of that, um, if if I have, we work with several different contractors, as I mentioned before. So we work with uh, Orbital ATK, we work with SpaceX, we work with Sierra Nevada. And each of those companies has its own um, sort of culture. But if I go, uh, I'm often on uh, business trips, and when I go and I'll, I'll pack, I'll literally have to pack, not have to pack. I'll do, choose to pack uh, different sets of clothing, essentially, for each of those places because the culture in each of those industries and each of those companies is different from um, from uh, company to company. So and that's just a very minor example of, you know, they're just different. They come from different heritages and they have different uh, perspectives on things. Uh, but they're all based in the same set of requirements that we laid on each of those U.S. contractors. Mm. Uh, it's a document called SSP 50808, and it defines, it aggregates all those things that we learned from from the shuttle program, from uh, station side of the interface, uh, and really have their heritage from the very early uh, Apollo, Gemini, and Mercury programs as well. And we put those all into one book and given those to industry, and that's what they're building their vehicles to, the interfaces of their vehicles to. I see. So it's, it's essentially create your own identity, do what you think is best, but whatever you do, it has to fit these requirements. You have to make sure you're playing by these rules. Otherwise, it's not going to work. We're not going to be able to play ball, I guess. Yep, that's that's correct. So yeah. you'll, you, you can see the vehicles. 
Uh, and just from their physical appearance, even you can see they're very different vehicles. Oh, yeah. When they come to station, they all have to, you know, match up perfectly. Yeah. Uh, even in the early days of space station, there was a lot of discussion. Well, are we going to do things in uh, English units of measure or in metric? Oh, and yeah. then even within, uh, if once we selected metric, once you look at metric, there's actually different uh, standards for metric as well. So once you get out there four or five decimal places, there can be small differences, which can then end up making differences in making sure everything um, connects correctly up on orbit. Oh, wow. I mean, even this, the the units that you're using are, can, can translate. Now, that's, that's just talking about um, uh, com- cargo vehicles, but you, you're already talking about looking forward at commercial crew. Now, I'm sure that's going to be it's it's going to be a challenge of its own because now not you're not just dealing with just equipment now you're dealing with people so is that is that would is that a little bit harder of a world because is there extra constraints there absolutely are there's um we we look at things um from a um Having humans on board, there's going to be a different set of interfaces and uh, controls that are in place for human-rated systems. Now, you know, these cargo vehicles still um, have human interfaces, as in they go to the station, they become attached, and they, uh, and our crew members go in and out of them, so they also have to adhere to human-rating standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with uh, the commercial crew vehicles, absolutely. If we're going to have people on board for... Uh, the time it takes to get on orbit, and perhaps uh, in any, uh, if there's uh, cases where they may stay longer on orbit uh, inside that vehicle, there's going to be accommodations for those humans as well. So absolutely, we have to consider all those aspects. It's just amazing the the broad scope of things that you and your team really have to manage, and and you're the manager of this group, right? The Transportation Integration Office. Mm-hmm. So and and you've had a quite a career at NASA and and in in various aspects. You were a programmer, uh, instructor for flight controller, working with payloads, working in avionics. You were kind of all over the place, but eventually got to this this management position. And and so, what did you have to do, and what were your goals to sort of work up the ladder and and really hone your skills into management to to look at something so broad that's interesting i i am um, i think my guiding my overall guiding principles i always wanted to do something that made a difference beyond myself but for uh, for a longer for a longer period you know perhaps hundreds or, or even longer uh, horizon uh, and for me when i looked around um, after college a lot of um, Friends of mine, as we were going through college, went to work in different industries. And when I really took a look around, um, and as I was within a couple of years of graduation, really deciding which way I'm going to funnel uh, my efforts uh, in the future, I really determined that spaceflight was really where I wanted to be. Hmm. And uh, smaller than, uh, even more targeted than that, human spaceflight. And then, so when I looked around, uh, it really became uh, the center, uh, Johnson Space Center, which is what really interested me. So once I got here as quickly as I could, you know, I <laughs> went to go work for the uh, the space shuttle and the space lab programs. And um, and from there, um, within the, the overall uh, broad umbrella of I want to do things that make a difference, um, I looked at what those things were that really interested me. So at the time, um, space shuttle, of course, I grew up just watching every space shuttle launch. And a uh, space station was the next new thing and that I really wanted to uh, to uh, contribute to and be a part of. So I came to Space Station. Within Space Station, it's, it's been a wonderful um, career being able to um, try different areas. So I've, I've got to go through quite a number of different areas and work in a lot of different areas. And I think really that, um, that desire to do that, as well as a lot of opportunities that a lot of um, great folks I've worked with and for uh, in the past really enabled me to try a lot of different areas hmm. and, uh, and really sort of culminated in the ability to be able to do this integration job where I can look across many different systems and subsystems um, and really apply things that I learned in the past to our next generation of vehicles. Yeah. 
Now, besides the the broad scope of technical expertise that you've acquired over the years, there's also this idea of of managing people and getting everyone to work together and and enjoy the jobs that they're doing and making sure that all of these requirements are being filled. So, how do you, as a manager, make sure that all of this is being done and in in the most fluid and efficient manner possible? Hmm. I'd say in a it really, um, there's not, there's no, there is no single way, right? <laughs> I think the most important overarching thing is to uh, align the organizational needs with the individual's goals as well. Huh. And that way, what, uh, what individuals want to do, if you can put them in the right positions that help further their goals at the same time as furthering the organization's goals, then everybody's happy. Yeah. Uh, I also try to provide um, near real-time feedback. Um, uh, in public, if it's if it's uh, praise, and in private, if it's um, an opportunity for improvement, um, and then I also try to recognize folks. Um, and I think everybody has a different way in which, or different ways in which they like to be recognized. Some uh, like public recognition. Some may like an on-the-spot award. Some may want a um, a time-off award in order to go spend more time with their family. Uh, others may want those plum assignments, and they're just they just constantly want more and more. And if if they get those big media assignments, and that really invigorates them, so really just trying to align uh, what the organization needs to get done with what each individual really what what really excites them. I love it. So looking forward to the future, you have all these different vehicles that you're working with and working with businesses here in the U.S., but also international partners. It's, there's, there's a lot going on and a lot going on in the future. What are this, what's the thing you're looking forward to most? Gosh, I think we're at a real, <laughs> you know, it was um, very interesting. Just a few years ago with the, um, uh, the, the transition from the old previous program called Constellation and then retirement of the space shuttle, you know, uh, NASA sort of came to a... Uh, uh, an end of the shuttle chapter and hmm. then there was a, a time where um, there was a little question about you know what's really the next step and I think it's really exciting now because I think you see a lot of um, public interest commercial interest international interest political interest uh, in space and there's a lot of exciting things going on right now the, the, on the space station we've really uh, hit our groove and I think that we are doing so many interesting uh, scientific experiments on board space station uh, we have commercial industry participating. Uh, I would say seven or eight years ago, we weren't sure that commercial industry uh, on a firm fixed price basis could develop new rockets and new spacecraft and resupply the space station. Um, on an international uh, front, uh, we've been working with these 15 uh, countries in the International Space Station for this year, it'll be 20 years, which is a pretty amazing thing, uh, given all the things that are happening or have happened on the planet over the last 20 years. And in many other areas, um, diplomatically, militarily, um, some of those countries weren't always best of friends. Um, but on the space station, I would say that we have always, without a, without an exception, pulled together to make sure that we did the right things for the crew and for the vehicle and for the partnership. That's wonderful. <laughs> Just laying it out like that, and that's such a nice, like, it's such a nice overview of just the state that we are right now, looking backwards, but then also looking forward to say, just based on looking at what we're, this environment that we're working in right now, there's so much that can still happen and there's so many different ways to grow. So thank you, Ven, for coming on and telling your story and kind of giving us a, this broad perspective of, of Space Station and what's to come. Great. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Well, Adam, that wraps up our guest for this episode. Thanks for helping to get these incredible people to come on and tell their stories. 
Uh, sure, my pleasure. I'm glad to be here, uh, Gary, and thank you for this great show and for this great opportunity to share and know our co-workers in the work workforce. Oh, I was really happy to do it. They were honestly, it was it was really a pleasure to talk to each and every one of them. Um, they have interesting stories and interesting jobs too. Really, I mean, they do a lot of important stuff. I just love talking to all these great people. Uh, so if you want to know, if you want to learn more from other great people, you can listen to other episodes of the po of this podcast. Is this was episode forty six, but really you don't really need to listen to them, to them in any particular order. You can just go back and listen to any anyone. And uh, there's some great stories. I would definitely recommend listening to Stories of Her Strength from Women's History Month and um, uh, African American History Month episodes. Also, really good podcasts and really good guests that we had there. Uh, otherwise, you can listen to some of our friends over at other centers. NASA in Silicon Valley over at Ames Research Center has a podcast. Uh, and then Gravity Assist is the podcast over at headquarters, hosted by uh, Dr. Jim Green to talk about planetary science. Otherwise, you could follow the NASA Johnson Space Center on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and use the hashtag AskNASA uh, to ask a question or maybe suggest an episode for a future talk where we can bring in guests and tell more stories. Just make sure to mention it's for Houston. We have a podcast. So this podcast, this episode, was recorded all through the month of May 2018, thanks to Alex Perryman, Kelly Humphreys, Pat Ryan, Bill Stafford, and of course to Adam here for helping to bring it all together. Thank you, sure. Adam. Thanks. And thanks again to all of our guests for coming uh, today on this show, Christine Bowie, Doug Wong, Charlene Gilbert, and Ven Fang. Happy Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. We'll be back next week. Thank you.